Nike in Oregon, the state that I'm from, as well as its flagship university, go way back, starting in the 60s when a wee Phil Knight was a student there. Over time, the relationship between Nike and the University of Oregon became a template for underfunded state universities all over the country to follow as they looked for sugar daddies like the shoe dog to close gaps left by drops in tax revenue, and universities became willing depositories of conscience-cleansing cash donations from every type of captain of industry. Journalist and author Josh Hunt takes a really deep and important dive into this complicated and painful reality in his new book, The University of Nike, How Corporate Cash Bought American Higher Education. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush, everybody. Episode 30. Wow. I am so happy to have gotten to this point, and in spite of a production schedule that makes no sense or, or doesn't really even exist, you guys, my faithful scores of listeners, have hung on and grown in ranks since my first episode back in February of 2016. Thanks to all of you for checking this out and sharing it around and continuing to remind me that I'm not... Uh, the only person that cares about this stuff. A special thanks to a few friends who were instrumental in getting this off the ground and keeping it there so that I could get here, including, and how appropriate, two University of Oregon grads, Nick Vranazan, who gave me the Zoom H4N that I use to record all of my interviews, and Kim Bliss for helping uh, getting the website up and running and the continued uh, counsel after every episode. And then also giant props to J.B. Rogers and Dave Lawson for recording the really, really good theme music. And last but never least, of course, is my lovely, patient wife, Miriam, who has been very supportive of this project, to say the least, uh, all along. More about each of these characters at crushpodcast.com. Of course, please subscribe to this podcast and rate the show on iTunes. But of course, you don't have to listen to it there. It's available on uh, Stitcher and other places where people listen to podcasts. But uh, if it isn't and you want it to be, let me know because I can't really keep up with all of the different uh, platforms. I'd love to be able to uh, have this heard by as many people as possible. So uh, help me out. Okay, so I am thrilled for this one in particular to be my 30th episode because it is so personal in nature to me for many reasons you'll hear about in the interview. But essentially, I grew up alongside the story that Josh Hunt writes about, which is to say I grew up alongside Nike and unfortunately against the efforts to defund public education, mainly through Oregon's lovely uh, initiative and referendum process and uh, in specific ballot measure five, which you'll hear more about. I've also got a pretty close personal history with the University of Oregon because that's where my sister went, uh, tons of my friends. It's where I went to the state uh, MUN conference every year in high school. And uh, obviously it's where Animal House was filmed. But I remember acutely feeling pretty scared as a kid when my dad, a uh, high school teacher and the union rep at the time, I believe, would talk about the impacts that these ballot measures would eventually have on education starting when I was 10 years old. Further cuts like these when I was in high school. I got a great education in the eight years that followed the passage of Ballot Measure 5, but as you'll hear, there were substantial impacts to higher education and also, of course, at the K-12 level. These concerns around funding for education are the ones that introduced me to Episode 15 guest Lou Frederick, who is now an Oregon State Senator, 
representing a district in Portland. And back when I was in high school, Lou worked for the public schools uh, as a representative to the, uh, to, the, to the Portland Public School Board. Lou was one of the guys, and still is, that listened and listens to students who have thoughts about their own education. And it's with this memory in my mind that I would like to express my support for the teachers striking in Los Angeles against uh, what appears to be a pretty naked effort to sort of dismantle what should be a fully funded system of community-based schools in one of the richest cities and one of the richest states in this country. Uh, it sounds, though, like as I record this, they've reached a deal that would include a 6% increase in teacher pay, lower class sizes, more nurses and counselors at schools. This is indeed great news, but uh, it is just insane to me that they'd have to walk off the job for six days to get this, but that's what happened, and, and they did. So congratulations to the teachers for um, getting to go back to work, hopefully, and the kids getting to go back to school, hopefully, under uh, what soon will become improved conditions. So here's my talk with Josh Hunt, who was kind enough to speak with me relatively late in the evening, his time in Seoul, South Korea, where we connected via Skype. I'd like to alert listeners that this episode does discuss incidences of campus sexual assault. Hi. How you doing? Good. How about yourself? I'm good, thanks. I'm a little under the weather, I'm not gonna lie. But I'll be I'll be fine. I'll make it. Okay, great. It seems that winter's gotten her grips around us here in New York City where I live, so Yeah. Um, yeah, I was there not so long ago and it was just starting to get chilly when I was there, so it's chilly here in Korea as well. Oh yeah, you're in Korea. And you live in Tokyo? I live in Tokyo, yeah. That's awesome. Why? Why do I live in Tokyo? Yeah. Uh, I moved there several years ago as a foreign correspondent for Reuters in Tokyo. And uh, I quit my job with Reuters to finish the book and moved back after that. I, I speak Japanese. I studied Japanese in college. so That's awesome. So you're currently employed by, well, you're not. You quit, you quit to do the, to do the book. Are you headed, right. Are you headed back? Did they, did they clear out your desk or... No, I, I work as a, uh, uh, they've tried to hire me back, but I, for the, for the moment, I still work as a free, freelance magazine writer, basically, okay. uh, for uh, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, uh, places like that. What kinds of things do you write about when you're not writing about Nike and Phil Knight and Oregon and everything? For Reuters, I covered mostly financial news and a lot of that was, you know, the minutia of the Tokyo stock market. So very different stuff. Uh, for the various magazines and websites that I write for, like I mentioned, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, uh, Pacific Standard, places like that, I write uh, largely about things going on in East Asia. For Bloomberg Business Week, I wrote a article about a Japanese robotics company called Fanuc, which has the market cornered in factory automation technology around mm. the world. These are the robots that are coming for our jobs. Right, right. And uh, for the California Sunday magazine a few years back, I wrote an article about the counterfeit goods economy in China. Um, Something we know all about here in uh, New York City. Right, Canal Street. Yes, sir. Um, so, uh, you know, for the Atlantic, I write occasionally about um, things that are going on in, in Japan, business trend wise or, 
you know, socioeconomic types of things. Largely, my writing has to do with uh, business technology and or crime or sometimes sometimes all three. Are you where are you from? I am originally from Alaska, and I, I did about half of my growing up in Oregon as well. Yeah, where in Oregon uh, did you grow up? I My family moved from southeast Alaska to the Springfield-Eugene area when I was just about to start middle school. So so I went to middle school and high school. Which high school did in, you go to in Eugene? I went to Springfield High School. Yeah. So I, I, lived, just, I lived just on the Springfield side of a bridge that uh, separates Springfield uh, and Eugene in the Gateway area. So I went to Springfield High School for a couple years, and then I went to Marshfield High School in Coos Bay mm-hmm. for the other couple years where, where Prefontaine went. Yeah, Springfield, Oregon being the place where probably most Oregon Simpsons fans would say is the original Springfield. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, yeah, it indisputably is. I mean... Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, Matt Grenning has more or less said so on a few occasions, I think. Yeah, see, he went, besides, to, uh, he went to my high and, school, Lincoln High School in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, and besides that, there's all the, you know, Portland references in Indeed. the Springfield. Yeah, so, it's fun for people who go, who are like, Terwilliger, could that be? Sideshow right, Bob? Love Lovejoy. Love joy. Yeah, it goes on and on. Um, well, I mean, I'm really excited to talk to you as a as an Oregon native, as a Portlander, but uh, also just because this book, I mean, I was gripped by it by virtue of its con- of its content, but also very much just in terms of like I grew up pretty much alongside Nike and alongside all of these events, like Measure Five, which we're going to talk about, uh, happened when I was in fifth grade. Michael Jordan's ascendancy was like, I mean, I was the kid, you know, whose dreams uh, he was fueling that you talk about in the book. I was also at USC during the time that uh, all of the labor rights activism was going on 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 campuses and participated in a bit of that as a a college uh, rabble rouser myself. I went to Nike Town downtown when it opened up. It was like the first one, I think. I mean, everybody I knew you know, had some, you know, it was like one or two degrees of separation and somebody worked for Nike. You know, there was this mythical Nike employee store where, you know, you could go and basically just take everything for free. I mean, it wasn't free, but you know. Yeah. I lived in, I lived in Portland for a number of years as an adult and, um, it's very hard. I go back often and it's, it's hard to live there for any length of time and not know a lot of people who work at Nike and or Adidas. Well, uh, full disclosure, I was once on the payroll at Nike as a wait for it child runway model interesting <laughs> yeah yeah so i went out to beaverton and i would like uh put on you know prototype clothes for you know 12 year olds or whatever uh and then go in front of like buyers representing different you know uh, uh department stores and stuff like that and at one point i actually did the full blown runway walk right in front of Phil Knight uh, at the uh, Red Lion Hotel in uh, like the kind of Hayden Island area. And I was summarily dismissed uh, (laughs) not not long thereafter. It had nothing to do, I'm sure, with my with my walk. I mean, I was really I was really I was damn good at this. But um, (laughs) Nike, as we learn in your book, they're not the like warm, fuzzy types when it comes to making decisions about 
a lot of things. But uh, how did, yeah, I mean, you you talk a little bit about it in the introduction of the book, but could you talk about how you came to get interested in this story? Yeah, for me, the story began with a a freelance assignment from the sports editor at the New York Times, a guy named Jason Stallman at the time, who sent me to Eugene. I was was in Portland then. He sent me to Eugene to uh, cover this scandal that was unfolding involving three University of Oregon basketball players who had been accused of gang raping a freshman uh, who was attending the school at a house party near Hayward Field. This was in spring of 2014. And um, at the time when I got wind of this story, uh, I got wind of it the same way Every other journalist got wind of it, which was the Eugene Police Department releasing this very graphic police report that had been filed uh, by the girl two months prior. And, you know, I I thought my my editor and I both thought that it was very curious that um, in the in the meantime, in the interim, since this girl had filed uh, these allegations uh, against these three young basketball players, not only had they still been around campus and and not really been investigated by the school in any significant way. They also had been allowed to keep playing basketball as the school progressed a bit further into the, uh, into the NCAA tournament play than they, than they usually gotten. And, uh, the basketball coach, the head basketball coach, still the head basketball coach, Dana Altman received a 40 or $50,000 bonus uh, because they'd gotten that far in the tournament. And so I went to Eugene, you know, hoping to answer these questions that we had about whether or not the school had had sought to cover this up. When I got there, you know, the prevailing opinion of a lot of people on campus was that not only had they covered this up, but they were covering up a lot of other things. And they were doing so because of the school's lucrative relationship with Nike and Phil Knight and because of the value of the school's brand as it has grown into this big sports powerhouse. And so that's how this story started for me, because I had attended middle school and high school in the Springfield, Eugene area, and because I could remember a time before all of this had, had transpired, before Tracktown USA looked more like Nike Town USA, mm-hmm. uh, before Eugene was all swooshes, everywhere you looked. Um, that was something that was interesting to me as well to, 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 to figure out just, you know, how this relationship had happened, what had started it all and how it had all gone down. And, you know, one of the things that you talk about in the introduction too is, I mean, it's, it, it, it's evident that you had to be incredibly tenacious to, um, attempt to get a lot of the information from the primary sources of it, who a lot of them, I think, sort of stonewalled, and you never got information directly from them, obviously, and you had to go around. But that tenacity, where does that come from? I mean, it seems like a pretty critical skill in the, your line of work. And I think about, you know, there may potentially be some future journalists listening to this. Like, where does that, where do you get that? And how could somebody like that, that maybe is looking at what you do and thinking that's how they want to do it, how could they get that? How could they uh, obtain or practice that skill such that, that it's in their tool belt? You know, one thing I tell people when I, you know, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to earn a master's degree at Columbia Journalism School 
And when I'm back in New York and I get the opportunity to talk to student journalists at my alma mater or uh, or elsewhere or, or, you know, or even when just people ask about um, my job, I tell people that um, I often tell people that a big part of what makes me successful as a journalist, particularly as a freelance journalist as an, as, and as an author, where I'm looking into stories largely on my own initiative instead of being handed assignments, uh, as many reporters who work on staff and, and are working a beat, you know, have assignments handed to them. The kind of stories uh, that I come up with are often the result of just following my natural curiosity a little further than the average person. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think all of us a dozen times a day see something or hear something or learn something. We go, I wonder why it's, I wonder why it's so, I wonder why this thing is that way. And my job as a journalist to aid in my work, I've just trained myself to answer all those questions, to, to, to go that next step further uh, beyond my natural curiosity. So I think part of it is just something you're, you, you either have or you don't. You're either a curious person or you're not. I think journalists, good journalists especially, tend to be naturally very curious people. But beyond that, it's just training yourself to follow up and, and say, um, you know what, I'm not, it's not good enough to wonder about that. I have to find out, and I have to find out for myself. A good example is um, when I first moved to New York for grad school, I wondered why there's scaffolding in front of so many buildings in, in yeah. New York. Anybody that walks around here has got to wonder that. And then after a while, it just becomes part of your life and you just deal with it. But yeah, it's a good question. Right. I mean, I asked, I asked a, lot of, a lot of New Yorkers about it and so many of them didn't know, didn't have any idea. And so I did what I do in my job and I just followed my natural curiosity and, and did some research and found out that it dated back to this one very big uh, windstorm when, uh, you know, it proved to be an especially unlucky day for a few people who got hit by uh, little bits of buildings that, that fell off uh, in different parts of the city. And uh, there were three, like, major incidents resulting from the same storm. And it just got sort of enough bad press that um, someone decided to do something about it. And it ended up in these new scaffolding laws that that required inspections and renovations on on facades to make sure that they're up to a certain standard that were so stringent that now there's this kind of cottage industry of you know people who spend all their time inspecting and repairing facades all over the city it's wild i mean there are some places people know for years only as having that scaffolding and then when it goes away it's like whoa what happened um, right. So exactly. There's your answer. So, so I would say um, it's just taking your natural curiosity a step further. Yeah. And 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 asking yourself, you know, why and and really being determined to find out. You know, um, at some point, someone along the way on my book tour last month or the month before asked me how I dealt with the 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 efforts by the university and specifically its public relations department to stifle my reporting and efforts by even people in the office of public records at the university. You know, how did I sort of, uh, how did I deal with it? How did I keep going? How did I not get discouraged by it? And 
to be perfectly honest, you know, I, I told them it, it was it had the exact opposite effect. It invigorated me. It made me angry. It made me angry that that public servants, people who work for a state university, mm-hmm. people who work for the state of Oregon, were not giving me the, the, the records that were that were mine by law, that were public records. That mm-hmm. that made me that made me very angry. And so I told this person, you know, th- there should be at these schools where they train these public relations uh, officers, I said, you know, my, my book would be a good example of a case study of how you turn a newspaper story into a book, how you mess up, <laughs> how, you, how you mess up your job so badly that you turn what could have been just a few newspaper articles and a, and a you know, a minor scandal into a big in-depth book that that really casts your institution in a bad light in some places. Yeah, as it says right here on the book jacket from uh, an individual named Dale Meharaj, a damning indictment of a whole lot of things. Um, I mean, the title is The University of Nike, How Corporate Cash Bought American Higher Education. And I mean, the range of topics that you were able to touch upon uh, via this story that you know you say your your curiosity led you to uh, pursue is is pretty amazing and I was I mean it's a, it's a it's a page turner and primarily though this story really has a lot to say about the cost of college which is a giant source of national debate you know with the the state of of loan debt in this country and and most people that you talk to on the street would probably pin the blame on on the colleges. You know, and I, I should say we're talking about public universities here, not private schools. But, you know, I used to be a college admissions counselor for a long time and I'd be at, uh, you know, college fairs and I worked for a private university. But, you know, the costs aren't wildly different uh, in a lot of cases between public and private in terms of the, uh, you know, the sort of sticker price. But according to a report by the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association or SHIOA, uh, which I'll, I'll link to so people can, can scope it out. They say that there's been a substantial shift of responsibility for financing public higher education towards net tuition revenue from about 25% to nearly 50% since 1990, uh, which is when Measure 5 passed. Um, and that's to say that the burden for financing their education has doubled for America's undergrads at public schools. And they say that on a per student basis, net tuition revenue increased only 0.4% between 2016 and 2017, um, the year, I think, prior to putting this report out. However, since the pre-recession high point in 2008, uh, net tuition revenue per student has increased 37.5% and has increased 96% in constant dollars over the last 25 years. So it's pretty clear what's going on with the cost of, uh, of college, at least when you're talking about public universities. How did it get this way in Oregon? And what role did Oregon or does Oregon have in this national conversation about those trends that this report's talking about? Well, you touch on a lot of things there. I'll, I'll try and hit them all. Um, I want to start by saying, you know, um, when, when you talk about blame, the universities themselves, of course, specifically top administrators share a a lot of the blame in a lot of specific instances. Mm -hmm. But in, in the bigger picture, I think it's very much worth remembering that, um, it wasn't them who sold American higher education, uh, because 
as the title implies, corporate cash has bought American higher education. The sellers, I would claim, ultimately have been the taxpayers, uh, American taxpayers, because, um, and, and this leads right into your question about what, what happened in Oregon. I call, in the book, I call Oregon and the University of Oregon in particular a canary in the coal mine because Oregon, back in 1990, with the passage of this really ruinous piece of state legislation called Ballot Measure 5, Oregon uh, kind of began this trend of disinvestment in higher education on the part of taxpayers. And so Ballot uh, Measure ballot measure 5, just for, for context, would... Uh it ended up limiting substantially uh, the proportion of a uh, property tax bill that would be used for funding public education. Is that is that about encapsulated? Basically, ballot measure five slashed property taxes, and and it was it was sold as a uh, it was sold by conservatives as a you know kind of a tax rebellion sort of deal, and and save money on your property taxes. A lot of these property taxes that were collected went towards funding education in Oregon, and um, not just higher education, but K through 12. And so, the aftermath, in the aftermath of Ballot Measure Five, there were just cut after cut after. There was a, a really severe schedule of cuts, especially mm-hmm. over the over those first five years. And it wasn't and, the only one either. There were successive uh, measures that were passed right. by 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 state voters. Right. And, and so um, what happened was K through 12 education was effectively pitted against higher education in terms of fighting over the same scraps from a, a, state, a state general fund when it came to um, funding for, for public education and higher education. Uh, I mean, they both lost out big, uh, but higher education very got an especially short end of the stick. So at the University of Oregon, the response was to go looking for what the president of the University of Oregon, then in 1994, a guy named Dave Fronmeyer, you know, when the worst of the cuts were starting to kick in, his response was to go looking for outside money. And um, that meant going to uh, Phil Knight, an alumni of the school whose father had also gone to the school to the University of Oregon long ago. And it meant turning to Phil Knight and to his company Nike uh, to build these partnerships. Uh, well, I should I should make this clear. Phil Knight personally uh, was turned to in order to fund new athletics facilities, uh, which this which uh, Fronmeyer and the school felt it needed to Uh, improve its uh, athletics teams, especially football and later on basketball, and raise its profile so that they could attract more students uh, from out of state who would pay higher tuition. And that was the sort of answer to their problem. And then Nike, I should add, uh, on the other side, uh, aside from Phil Knight's uh, uh, private donations, there were also business partnerships with Nike for athletic apparel and so forth. 
Right. And I mean, the, the, the connection that Phil Knight has the University of Oregon isn't just, you know, that he went there and Nike is headquartered in the state of Oregon, but that, you know, his time at the University of Oregon uh, is really critical in the sort of origin story and lore and mythology of Nike. And he traded on that very heavily, as did Dave Fronmeyer in establishing this partnership. It seems probably to the outside observer to make perfect sense, right? Yeah, I mean, much has much has been made of the fact that Phil Knight and his co-founding partner in Nike, his track coach Bill Bowerman, the University of Oregon uh, track coach, you know, that much is much marketing material has been made over the fact that you know they developed the early Nike prototypes uh, using uh, Bill Bowerman's uh, waffle maker to you know pour this rubber compound into to make molds that would become the the bottom of the you know this waffle shoe pattern that they had for their early nike shoes and then of course uh steve prefontaine the legendary oregon runner was um played by jared leto in the film played ably by jared leto in the film (laughs) (laughs) was um you know he was he was uh he was a very important um early uh, Nike athlete, uh, uh, while technically not a uh, sponsored athlete because sponsorships and amateurism were kind of complicated back then. Nevertheless, he worked for Nike basically and was given money by Nike. And because of his huge potential in his early death, his his own myth is really closely linked to to Nike's continued success in in later years. Right. It's one of the things that's also fascinating about this, about this story, reading this book, is that a couple of characters that we've already named, Dave Fronmeyer and Bill Bowerman, also figure prominently into the Rajneeshi situation made famous in the uh, Netflix documentary of late, uh, which is also fascinating just to, to, to that, there's a, <laughs> that there's a connection there, which is Bill Bowerman's son was one of the people sort of doing battle against them uh, out at the ranch. Yeah. Um, and Dave yeah, Fronmeyer was a state attorney general, right? Yeah, that's right. Anyone who, I mean, anyone who has seen Wild Wild Country, the Netflix documentary you're referring to, uh, really ought to pick up the book and read it if for no other reason than to learn even more insane stuff about the lives led by some of these guys, particularly Dave Fronmeyer and Bill and Bill Bowerman. No kidding. It's, uh, I mean, uh, you know, really, really huge figures in in Oregon's history and. Um, Fronmeyer in particular, the, the, the point at which I knew I had to write this book was really when I, I, asked, I asked questions. How did this all begin? Okay, it sort of began with uh, Measure 5 and Dave Fronmeyer and all this stuff. And, but, you know, when I, as I looked more deeply and saw how these two men, Dave Fronmeyer and Phil Knight, were basically responsible for the University of Oregon as it, as it exists today, uh, more than any two other people, I just thought it was so so fascinating, and their relationship with it, all its ups and downs over the years was was equally fascinating. I mean, a very uh, uh, I mean, almost Shakespearean. Absolutely, Fromeyer in particular is almost a, a Shakespearean figure. I couldn't agree more. And I think you know that the phrase Faustian bargain comes uh, to mind because Dave Fromeyer not only was, you know, the steward of the University of Oregon system looking for Phil Knight support, but I mean, in in just mind-bogglingly tragic 
terms, he had three children with a an extremely rare uh, genetic disorder. And Phil Knight, it would seem, was able to really kind of put the screws to Fronmeyer to do what he wanted him to do, not only by you know, sort of threatening funding, which happened off and on over the years towards the University of Oregon, but also threatening funding towards the organization that was responsible for uh, financing the research into this uh, very rare disorder, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, Fronmeyer, Dave Fronmeyer, as president of the University of Oregon, put himself in a position that no, that no university administrator uh, should ever put themselves into, uh, I would say, a very questionable ethic, ethical quandary in, in that he allowed Phil Knight to secretly become the largest donor to this nonprofit organization that he operated with his wife, which was dedicated uh, uh, solely towards finding the cure for this genetic disorder that, that had killed two of his daughters and was killing a third and uh, unbelievable. Look, I mean, I mean, it, it's it's very tragic, and it's certainly understandable. I think anyone could understand how you want to do everything uh, you could do, but uh, uh, where the trouble comes in is that you can't do things like that in the dark. The uh, taxpayers, and I mean, anyone involved in the operation, any anyone remotely uh, uh, calling themselves a stakeholder in the University of Oregon or in the Eugene community had a right to know uh, what tremendous leverage Phil Knight had over Dave Frohmeyer in when it came to financial ties. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's one of many cautionary warnings that other people should, should look out for um, wherever they are. Because, um, like I said, the University of Oregon was a canary in a coal mine. They were the they were they were the first big public university to start disinvesting in higher education with with ballot measure five, but by their, they were by no means the last. There's been a big big trend towards taxpayers decreasing the amount of of taxes and states decreasing the amount of state support going to their public universities, and um, lots of universities uh, have looked at the University of Oregon Nike partnership as a positive model, as a kind of blueprint for building up athletics and using it as a big billboard to attract more out of state and international students who they can charge higher tuition. Uh, because, I mean, really, that's how short term their thinking has been. I mean, it, it, the, the solution to this problem is, is, is the equivalent of giving a teenager a credit card with a high limit and just allowing them to live way beyond their means. That's what schools like the University of Oregon are doing. They're not actually solving the fundamental problems. Um, they're just charging students more and more and uh, constantly living and operating at a deficit in terms of raising all the money that they need to build all the facilities that they need to build to keep this train rolling. Because, um, you know, the myth of big time college athletics is that it is 
self-sustaining and somehow sustainable. It's not. You know, as lucrative as the partnerships with Nike are, and as generous as Phil Knight may be with some of the funding that he gives to build, um, you know, massive uh, sports facilities, it comes with a price tag for taxpayers, too. Often, uh, state bonds have to be issued to help pay for, for some of these facilities because men like Phil Knight don't usually pay the full amount. They pay for, you know, part of it, maybe half or more. And then other people have to pay for the rest of it, uh, often, often taxpayers or students, as we've mentioned, who, whose tuition dollars subsidize certain aspects of these big athletics programs at schools like the University of Oregon, the University of Maryland, and so forth. Well, and then also just from the standpoint of, of student athletics, I mean, I know, I know a billion people that went to the University of Oregon, many of whom had, uh, had I say, uh, season tickets to you know, go to the football games and stuff like that. And I mean, all of this money has definitely not uh, slowed the, uh, the, the price of those season tickets such that they were totally priced out of the experience. No, yeah. These these programs, big and shiny as they are, are not self-sustainable. Uh, if, the, if, they, if they were, tuition wouldn't be going up at, at such a radical rate as we've seen. And, um, you know, one consequence of tuition going up and up and up as these schools build their brand and build their relationships with these corporate benefactors like Nike who kind of rebrand them and, and make them look uh, sexier and more attractive to undergraduate students. One of the consequences is that uh, graduates, you know, in-state students, graduates from Oregon high schools, you know, increasingly lose out on the chance to get a good education at a school like, like the University of Oregon. And this happens, this is happening in, in, in states around the country because, uh, the emphasis has just shifted so much toward attracting out-of-state students and to raising tuition. So now those those students who might have used more affordable in-state tuition at a state university like the University of Oregon, people who in previous generations would have used that to, to lift themselves out of poverty, often as maybe the first person in their, in their family even to, to go and get a four-year degree at a big school like that, that's now out of reach for a lot of them. And it also plays into a really tragic aspect of the student debt crisis, which is that um, you talked about uh, how much tuition has increased at some schools in the past several years. So, you know, one consequence of having tuition that can go up so dramatically that, you know, there were some periods in recent history, uh, you know, since 2010, where tuition might go up by 10 or 12% in the space of just a couple of years at the University of Oregon. One consequence of, of dramatic tuition increases like that is that students who are borrowing heavily to go to school and who are just barely hanging on and working their way through school, um, that kind of tuition increase can actually make them need to drop out before they finish their degree. And so Two or three years in, they leave school with most of the debt and no degree to show for it. And that, I think, is one of the really, truly tragic aspects of the 
the ongoing student debt crisis. Well, yeah, and I, that, as as a couple of guests that I've had on have have discussed, you know, there there's there's it's one thing to have a lot of student debt and a college degree, but there's almost nothing worse than having college debt and no degree. It's truly a tragedy, and um, and uh, but as long know, as we keep you know producing the uh, the you know the the uh, the bread and circuses. Right, uh, the bright, literally shiny objects to deflect away from this in the form of uh, iridescent, uh, insane football uniforms—you know, made from the uh, crushed wings of a thousand dragonflies or whatever the hell they are doing. Uh, you know, maybe people will not uh, not dig as deep as you have into this. Well, you know, again, to talk about blame a bit, you know, uh, we talked about how the taxpayers are to blame, and you know. Regarding the administrators, there's been a really important shift in how universities are run uh, within the past oh, 10, 15 years. And um, it has to do with, you know, a certain tier of administrator. And, you know, if you talk to any, you know, faculty at any university in the country, any certainly any public university, I think you'll find that this is increasingly true, which is the rise of the professional administrator. I mean, there was a time when administrators, particularly a university president, uh, would rise up the ranks through the faculty. Dave Fronmeyer himself was in charge of the, he was the dean of the law school at the University of Oregon for a couple of years before he became the interim president and then the president at the University of Oregon. And increasingly, you've got these uh, professional university presidents who float from one school to the next and uh, stick around for two, three, four, at most often five years. And their agenda usually is to, you know, build something big and have their name associated with it Mm -hmm. Uh, because, well, it's for the same reason why people love athletics, college athletics in the first place. I mean, the whole reason that colleges got into the business of college football is because it was a way of drumming up public support for the university that had nothing to do with academics and, you know, excellence and all these things that you can't really demonstrate in a, in a palpable visceral way, the way you can on the football field. And so the way that, um, you know, because uh, it's more or less Im- impossible to, especially with the funding situation as it is, since it's more or less impossible to show really big, uh, sexy looking gains in academic excellence, uh, even with a lot of effort, um, I th- most university presidents, in my opinion, don't even try. They just show up on campus and say, okay, who can I get to pay for a new football stadium or a basketball court or something? And how and and how can I get uh, photographed at the ribbon cutting? And then you know move on to the next job where I'll make more money at a bigger school uh, where they'll expect me to do the same thing. Right. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I think I, I'm seeing. You know, I've seen uh, over the course of my lifetime as I've looked at the way that education has been administered. K-12 and upward, uh, there's this shift towards, you know, running schools like a business, you know, which uh, I think a lot of people on the conservative side of the spectrum see those institutions as 
as that, uh, or that they ought to be run in that fashion. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it shifts the, the clear mission of the place away from the academics. And I, by the way, I, I think, you, you know, you talk a lot in here about and one of the other tragedies is just the, the degree to which the university faculty are consistently uh, shortchanged, uh, not just sort of as they see these gleaming, you know, Taj Mahals of, of athletics go up around campus, but, you know, relative to their peers uh, in the rest of the public university system in this country, they were just really underpaid, weren't they? Right. Yeah. There, that, that was a, a problem for years and years at the University of Oregon. It continues to be a problem. It, um, and, you know, and, 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 at, at many schools where athletics is made a priority, it's it's a big problem uh, because uh, they're just quite simply not valued. And um, at the same time, they're dealing with bigger class sizes because, again, the school is relying on tuition increases and more students to, uh, you know, to shore up the money that they need to keep the, the roof on the place. And so, um, you know, class sizes are getting bigger, uh, which means these uh, professors, these faculty are working harder and arguably less effectively because they have less individual time to spend with their students. Um, the, uh, at the University of Oregon in particular, there's been a real lack of emphasis on uh, PhD programs and master's programs. And so that puts additional strain on faculty because faculty, as you know, rely really heavily on having, you know, PhD candidates and master's candidates to help them teach, to help them in their research and to, you know, be productive with their research, uh, which is, which is, you know, supposed to be something that, uh, that faculty and at, at, at a flagship university like the University of Oregon, you know, they're, su- they're supposed to be producing good research. That's supposed to be one of the ways that the school brings in money and raises its prestige. And that's really hard to do if you're, you know, spending all your time teaching these overflowing classes for uh, wages that aren't that aren't going anywhere. And on that topic of, of research, it's it's one of the ways that your book illustrates the extent of corporate cash in the university system is to talk about the influence that corporations have had over the direction of research at public universities. Yeah, it's a it's a very big and very concerning problem. You know, one of the latest developments at the University of Oregon is that Phil Knight has invested half a billion dollars into something called the Knight Campus for uh, the Knight Campus for Advancing Scientific Impact. It's a very Silicon Valley sort of title. You know, it's a it's still a very vague concept. It hasn't been outlined very well, even though it's being built right now. Um, you know, so he he first of all he, he gives five five hundred million for a campus that's going to cost a billion dollars. So that means the school has to raise the other half a billion dollars, which they're already having trouble doing. And they've already had to go back to the Oregon State Legis- Legislature a couple of times and ask for permission to issue bonds that are going to come with hefty interest payments further down the line. Uh, so again, really short-term thinking. Another uh, problem is that um, 
you know, there's a lot of speculation about what's going to actually go on on this campus. Many people think uh, it's going to have to do with uh, partnerships and, you know, with pharmaceutical companies. But whatever it is, it could be partnerships with uh, AI companies, whatever it ends up being. There's going to be a lot of work there that that will very likely be conducted in secret with taxpayer money because there are loopholes in our public records laws which allow for the protection of trade secrets, uh, even when it comes to public records. For example, emails between professors and researchers and someone at, say, Google or Novartis or Pfizer or something like this. You know, there could be things going on on campus and, and research could be guided in a way that taxpayers will never know about. And, and anyone who knows their history or who reads my book and gets a sense of the history will see very clearly that, um, that universities, entire universities and research departments and individual scholars can and will massively breach ethical, ethical rules and ethical and laws even. Uh, in order to to get money, mm-hmm. in order in order to get money that keeps them work working on their on their research on their project. I mean, we see it time and time again. And so, you know, it's interesting. Some people who aren't looking closely might look at that situation and say, "Oh, isn't that nice? Uh, Phil Knight, the Nike guy, is giving all this money to something that has nothing to do with athletics, and it's all about academics. Isn't that great?" Well, not so fast. If you look at Berkeley's partnership with Novartis and also later on, uh, th- that was in, in the late 90s, around 2000, uh, uh, Berkeley had this disastrous partnership with Novartis. And then a decade, you know, almost a decade later, uh, a second disastrous partnership with BP Oil. I mean, a, a close look at what happened in either of those cases, or in numerous other examples, shows you what happens when you let corporations uh, guide research. And when you let research departments at public universities um, sign these contracts that no public institution ought to sign. I mean, it's sort of capitalism 101 that corporations are out to make money and they're beholden to their taxpayers and their board members and their executives, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. And someone like Phil Knight doesn't get to the position where he's at without always consistently getting the better end of the deal. Uh, BP didn't get to be BP by making bad deals. I would argue they didn't even get, these corporations didn't even get to be what they are by making, you know, okay deals or deals that were, you know, that had winners on both sides. <laughs> the, the, these types of big, massively successful multinational corporations got to be what they are by making winner-take-all kind of deals, the right. kind of deals where, where they win. Right. And on, on the university side, the only winners consistently are a few top administrators and occasionally some researcher here or there. But students uh, always end up losing out in these deals, and faculty always end up losing out. Right. Well, I think that also this is a, you know, to the extent that this is a story about 
a story about a story about a story, which is really why this book is so good. Is it's just it, it it's it's emblematic of so many other things that are going on in our society. But but one of the other things too is it's like corporate influence in American society in general. Uh, you know, has been amazingly ascendant, and especially and 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 as as a result of of their absolutely purposeful efforts to starve the beast as they say right to um to starve the beast of government of resources to operate so that the private sector can step in and uh and, and fill that fill that void um and uh right. this is obviously a, a a pretty pretty staggering example of that but i mean there are a lot of different places you could look to see that happening and then at the end of the day it's just about picking the carcass clean because the truth is that these, you know, I mean, one of the great myths of conservative America is that everything would run better and more efficiently if it were just run like a business, right? I mean, that's that's basically the basis of modern American conservative political thought is that government is too big and too slow and too wasteful. And if everything were just run like a business, uh, just think how smooth and efficient everything would be. And... Well, look what happens when we end up with a government consisting of nothing but business people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've got it right now, and it's a nightmare, and they do not know what they're doing. Well, I think it's, you know, it's in large parts exactly what they're after. You know, it's like they've got their, their kamikaze pilots. Well, I think it's, it's um, I mean, I, I personally wouldn't go that far simply because I don't have the evidence to support it, but... I can just what shoot would, from the hip, however, with conjecture. What, what I would say <laughs> is that, um, I mean, uh, I'm all for your theory. Uh, all right. I'm all for your theory. I just uh, don't have the, the evidence to support it, so I, I don't say it. But what I, what, I think, uh, what I think personally is that, take Donald Trump. Uh, here's a guy who uh, was born with a tremendous amount of, money. He was, he was left a tremendous amount of money by his father. Um, he has been a disaster as a business person. I mean, he's gone through bankruptcies. Uh, he's, he's just, um, he's just not a good business person. He's not good at buying for a nickel and selling for a dime or anything close to it. He, he has, uh, succeeded in, uh, whatever sense that he has succeeded simply because the system so greatly favors people who have tons of capital and is so willing to bail them out over and over and over again. So, yeah. And, and it's sort of how corporate America runs. I mean, this is why you could, you could uh, write down the names of every American CEO on a dartboard and throw a dart at them. And everyone is going to have every single one of them, no matter where that dart lands, you're going to have as many failures as successes uh, because it's just all about riding the market and, um, you know, going bust with one company and getting a golden parachute and then moving on to the next company and, you know, riding that roller coaster Mm -hmm. until it's time to take another golden parachute very very few of these people actually seem like they're they know what they're doing if you if you look at them at their career just in terms of 
the balance sheets. Uh, And so, uh, you know, with the exception of companies that are sort of true monopolies, that's sort of what we see in in my book, uh, I claim, is, is that that kind of thinking taking hold at universities around the country. But you know, my book in particular is, is primarily a case study. And I think it shows what very clearly what happens when you hand over great public universities to private interests. They right. will, they will uh, strip them for parts. Mm-hmm. And you use those parts to build the Potemkin village that uh, projects the appearance of uh, financial health and, and all other kinds of health uh, on the backs of student athletes and, and, and all kinds of other uh, exploitable people. Um, now, there's a metaphor I can get behind. That's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the I, I know it's late where you are, and so I, I don't. I just have a couple more questions. So, um, you know, your your book brings us up as close to current day as possible um, before you needed to just finally, you know, press send and get it off to the publisher. But I looked up some of the characters in this book, and um, some of them are right where they were, and some of them are not. So, one of these people, Tobin Klinger. Um, mm-hmm. it, it looks like he has resigned as a result of your book. Uh, who is he and, and what do you know about that story? Uh, I don't know anything about that story other than that the Eugene Weekly, which is the weekly alternative newspaper in Eugene, Oregon, where the University of Oregon is based, they, they claim that uh, my book had something to do with uh, him no longer being the communications director at the University of Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, something something that happened not long after my my book uh, was published. You know, they note that he was portrayed in an unflattering light in my book, which uh, you know I would argue he per- earned he, completely. He acted in a way that that made it difficult to portray him any other way. But uh, yeah, I don't know anything about that. Uh, other than that, I I think, I think he's still employed by the school in some capacity, mm-hmm. and I suspect they will take very good care of him. I I in fact I suspect he'll be uh, better off. Right. But I which I is also, depressing. Um, yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, if I can be an optimist for a moment. Uh, let me just say that uh, whoever ends up being the next communications uh, director for the University of Oregon, uh, you know, there's a chance that they will do better. There's a chance that their attitude towards uh, credible sexual assault allegations won't be to treat it like a PR issue, right. won't be to treat it like something that needs to be covered up. Um, so, uh, you know, there's one thing to be optimistic about, cautiously optimistic about. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna end on a pretty pessimistic note, but I, I think I'm not gonna do that in favor of of going your route here uh, and taking that, taking that optimism while it's available because it is in, uh, it feels like it's in short supply these days. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'll say one more optimistic thing, please, which is that, please, uh, which is that uh, you know people. And I'll say one more optimistic thing and one constructive thing, which is that some people have said this book is very depressing. Are you hopeful in any way at all? And I tell them that I'm very hopeful uh, about the protest movement that's regained so much momentum on college campuses mm-hmm. and even high school campuses. 
I, I think the left uh, very much got jaded uh, on certain issues, particularly, I mean, one good example is gun control. Yep. For how many, how many years now have we been hearing that that's a non-starter, and so why even talk about it? And then all of a sudden, these 17 and 18-year-old students come out of nowhere and really start making the NRA sweat with, with their totally grassroots protest movement. Right. Uh, so that, that's very encouraging, and I think it's encouraging that uh, there are – I don't identify as a democratic socialist, but I get emails all the time from people who are part of the democratic – you know, members of different chapters of the Democratic Socialists of America – and, um, you know, they, they, that's one group of people who's been very interested in my book and who's talked, you know, asked me to come to their town or their campus and give a talk. And I'm really encouraged by that because, uh, you know, I think times like these demand really radical ideas that, that we weren't willing to consider or talk about just a few years ago. Yeah. And so I think it's, great. I think it's great that so many people are, are, are turning to radical ideas on the left and that they're actually their voices are being heard people like Ocasio-Cortez and then on a constructive note I'll say that um, you know some people have said well what's the answer to all this and to that I say that you know this started with taxpayers turning their back on public institutions I think the obvious answer is that we need to uh, remember their inherent value and remember that public universities are one of the best uh, ideas that we ever had uh, as a country, and um, we really need to support them. And the first thing I think we ought to do is to make sure that corporations are paying their fair of sh their fair share of taxes. And so, if we have uh, Under Armour and Nike and Google and Amazon supporting universities, let them do it with their tax dollars in a way that's accountable and transparent and that actually does some public good rather than in uh, a way where it just takes place in the shadows and creates uh, you know, private fiefdom that benefits the corporation and a few administrators at the top. I'm as, I'm as hopeful as you are on this. I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, that's that's what hope is for, right? Is that it's there when uh, when nothing else is. But um, we'll see uh, we'll see where this goes. I mean, and on that note, is there a place that people can kind of follow your work or or, or follow this follow the story? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is at via Josh Hunt v i a j o s h h u n t. My website is via Josh Hunt dot com. My Email is via Josh Hunt at Gmail if people want to drop me an email and ask me a question. Awesome. Uh, well, I'm really, really thankful for for your work here for a variety of reasons, but you know, not the least of which being on a personal level. Uh, this was uh, quite a walk uh, back through my own uh, history, my own educational history, both, you know, as a result of what was going on with measure five, my dad was a public high school teacher. Uh, and, uh, you know, we dealt with uh, a lot of that in the household and, uh, on through to the fact that, 
You know, I won the uh, prize one day on on a KGON's Get the Lead Out uh, Led Zeppelin half hour where they kicked the half hour off with with my recommendation. And the prize was two tickets to go and see the Grateful Dead in in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, I think I was maybe 12 or 13. Uh, and I, I hung up the phone with the KGON radio guy and walked down the hall. I talked to my mom and I said, uh, I just want two tickets to see the Grateful Dead. And she said, far out. And so my mom took me to see the Grateful Dead in, in Eugene when I was 13. Uh, and, uh, I think it was that day we got back from the concert and uh, OJ Simpson was going down the uh, going down the highway in the white Ford Bronco. So, uh, yeah. Anyways, thanks for indulging me that. And thanks for for your hard work. And I I have been recommending the book left and right. And I just cannot uh, express that highly enough to people that are interested in in any of this stuff uh, to pick it up and read it. So thanks again so much, Josh. Thanks so much. It was nice talking to you. In case you guys were wondering, the Led Zeppelin song I requested was 10 years gone. I still remember that, and I've posted the set list in the show notes for you deadheads that want to know what specifically went into the ears of 14-year-old Davin on June 17th, 1994. I uh, was able to triangulate that because it was definitely the day of the white Ford Bronco going on, uh, and I, had, I came home and I had to pack for the 8th uh, grade Washington, D.C. trip, and uh, I'll, I'll post a photograph of 8th grade Davin on the website for you guys to check out uh, where I'm actually wearing the uh, the shirt I got at the concert. So um, it just continues to get, uh, get weirder here. All right, so I said I wasn't going to leave on a, a pessimistic note, and I don't know, maybe this isn't pessimistic, but it's something I've been thinking about uh, a whole lot recently, and certainly as I grow up, and, you know, it's episode 30. So I'm going to take a personal moment here, inspired by Josh Hunt and his book. So here I am, pushing 40. Okay, taking a gander at the uh, landscape of adulthood here as a parent of a five-year-old girl myself, which blows my mind, and as somebody working in a business whose primary goal is to help kids. And I'm looking at it all through the lens of the era that I grew up in, which is when parental hysteria about uh, kids' safety really started to take off. Episode 13 guest Julie Lithcott Hames documents really well in How to Raise an Adult right in the first part of the book titled Keeping Them Safe and Sound, uh, the degree to which this is uh, when this all started to take off. This was the era of, among many other initiatives of its kind, the Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC, which was Tipper Gore's effort to save impressionable cherubs like me from the evils of bad words and sex and music by trying to ban some of my all-time favorite acts, which they labeled the Filthy 15. This included Judas Priest, Prince, and Venom. And thankfully, uh, in that era, it was also satirized and continues to be used as a meme for the charade that is public figures talking about protecting children, thanks to Helen Lovejoy. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? Because guess what? People, and specifically people with great power, aren't thinking of the children, and the University of Nike couldn't provide better examples of it. This is a story about the exploitation of young people, something that as we get older and stop being young people ourselves, we seem to find a really disturbing level of comfort with, or if not comfort, then willful ignorance, perhaps uh, in order to achieve comfort. I don't know. I'm struck by all the examples of kids being exploited in this book. There's the NCAA student athletes, 
injured, uneducated, and unpaid. Go back and listen to my interview with Bobby DeMars for more on on that. There's the kids getting shot over high-priced Jordans, which was a thing when I was growing up. The students in college who are getting shortchanged because resources are being diverted to athletics. There are the child workers in Nike's factories, the diabetes-prone child consumers of the Coke and Pepsi products that were in their public schools as a result of exclusive partnerships they made with underfunded school districts. Uh, there are the generations of Oregon school children getting shortchanged by adults who don't want to pay their taxes. Uh, and on down to the daughters of President Fronmeyer who suffered from Fanconi anemia and were, it seems, treated as pieces on Phil Knight's chessboard. The cruelty of this greed, which is to say the cruelty of greed in general, is objectively shocking. Or at least it ought to be. I wonder if we have the ability to be shocked by any of this anymore. Okay, so just this week, calls have gone out to Tufts and Harvard for them to disassociate with the Sackler family and Purdue pharmaceuticals who are the producers of oxycontin because not only has their product killed 9,000 children over 18 years according to a recent yale study but it has emerged that their biggest concern in learning about its addictiveness was how that would impact their profits which they thought probably would impact them positively profits by the way fueled by sales of 20 million dollars a week which richard sackler said were quote not so great if you read this book, which is to say, if you read this narrative of the ceaseless power of capitalism's exploitative hunger that mirrored my own upbringing as a human in this country and global economy, and also you just sort of take a look around at things in the world, it isn't hard to understand why people are taking a hard look at the philosophy of capitalism and saying, to quote Peggy Lee, is that all there is? And so I agree with Josh when he talks about being encouraged by the likes of my Bronx neighbor, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I absolutely love how much the people who are annoyed by her are just showing their whole and complete ass to the world. Every generation says over and over again, oh, won't somebody please think of the children? And then they say things like bard of the boomers, Aaron Sorkin here, who put words in Jeff Daniels' mouth in the first episode of Newsroom when his character, a member of the generation that made the world decidedly harder for their children to live in, said this to a 20-year-old college student. But you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period generation period ever period. So when you And that's all I needed to hear, and I never watched another moment of that show. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And then I see that, of course, he's also now made news for doing a big old finger wag and telling Ocasio-Cortez and her ilk that it is time to stop acting like young people. Ibram Kendi is an author who wrote a book that you all should read called Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racism in America. And he wrote on Twitter, quote, They complain about the apathy of millennials and try to rein us into politics. When we show up with our unique interests and power plays like AOC, they complain about the way we show up and try to rein us out of power. And that really nails it for me. Everyone always throughout time groans and whines about kids these days. And I absolutely can't stand it. I never could, not as a kid, not as a grown-up. So if any of you are doing that, if you hear this and maybe you find yourself wandering down the path of Ugh, fucking millennials and Snapchat and rap today is the worst, stop, stop it, stop doing that. They're making these generational differences uh, a real thing is a bad move. You sound old and stupid. 
You're being regressive and reactionary. Your old road is rapidly aging, so get out of the new one if you can't lend a hand, as some old dude once said back when he was uh, young himself. Be a part of the society that really does give a shit about kids. And like all kids, not just your kids. This needs to be a future where we care about people and we have empathy and we reject the uh, trappings of greed and the lies that these captains of industry sell us and we take care of each other. Because let me tell you, I have, I don't know about you, I have been watching that National Geographic show about Mars and guess what? Uh, Mars looks like it completely sucks. They don't have really anything there. It looks, it looks super boring. So we got to make this thing work here on Earth, man. We got to. All right. End rant. I'm going to go take a long, hard look at my Nikes and uh, decide what to do next with them. So I'm going to go out here with probably the most apropos song from the aforementioned PMRC's Filthy 15. And uh, my guess is you'll shake your head and be like, why? Why was this on the on the list? And then I hope you're inspired to like not take it anymore. Right? Spread love, guys. Thank you for listening.